Hello everyone, thank you for joining with us on the Women in Foreign Policies podcast today. We would like to start by sharing with you some exciting news. Starting this month, a new podcast team is taking on the responsibility of bringing to you inspiring content about women in foreign policy. Let me start by introducing myself. My name is Kritika Narayanan and I will be leading Women in Foreign Policy's podcast team as its new podcast editor. I'm a journalist based in India and I'm working as a foreign correspondent for Germany's international state-run broadcaster Deutsche Welle (DW). I have been volunteering with Women in Foreign Policy for the past 3 years in a variety of roles and I cannot wait to get into the podcast with you and bring to you inspiring content about women in foreign policy. Stay tuned. Hi everyone, my name is Ellie and I'm from Hertfordshire, which is just outside of London. I currently work in London as an administrator for a charity based in Westminster. My area of interest in foreign policy is atrocity prevention and I would love to work in the field in the future, either by influencing government from the inside or by setting up my own organization. I've been a subscriber of the Women in Foreign Policy podcast and newsletter for about 2 years now and I'm really excited by the opportunity to meet some amazing women and learn from them. I'm also really excited by the plans the team and I have for the future and I can't wait to get more into the podcast. Hi everyone. My name is Tara and I live and work in London. I'm currently working in a think tank which focuses on the study of UK and EU politics and foreign policy. I'm interested in the experiences of armed forces personnel and gender and conflict more broadly, particularly in defense and security institutional identities. I've been producing podcasts for a couple of years now and I'm really excited to be working with the team at Women in Foreign Policy. I'm hoping to continue researching soldiers' service experiences and to better understand the structure and function of defense institutions in a policy or academic role. I'm really excited to share this first episode with you all. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, Ashley speaks with Julia Anderson, the Chief Executive Officer for the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health or CanWatch. So, my name is Julia Anderson. I am the Chief Executive Officer, the CEO at the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health. I've been with the organization about 5 years and my background is in women, gender equality, foreign policy, international development and just generally trying to think about how this crazy big world is put together and what we can do to improve it. So that's what I do and that's what I have the great privilege of getting to sort of live and work out on a daily basis with my work at Canwatch. What exactly does Canwatch do? What is sort of like the day-to-day there? What is your sort of big overarching goal? So the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, we formally became an organization about 5 years ago. Before that, we were an informal steering committee under the title of the Canadian Network for Maternal Newborn Child Health. And really we came about because uh, the Stephen Har- Harper government in Canada really wanted to sort of move our international development portfolio from one that did a lot of things in a lot of places to a more focused issues-oriented portfolio. and his interest his flagship was in maternal newborn and child health and so there was a major investment in all the actors in the space and that includes the private sector actors the not for profit actors civil society organizations research institutions sort of all the canadian actors 
who had been working up until then and were going to expand their work in women and children's health formed a network, which we now call the partnership. And that's who makes up our organization. So we've got about 100 members from all those different kind of groups that I referred to. They're all Canadian entities and they're all working to advance women and children's health and rights. So on a day-to-day, we're supporting their work through helping them get to the bottom of best practices, shift their work to make sure they're sort of on the cutting edge of global health and women and children's health in particular. We're working on metrics, really trying to look at data and information in a new way and look at it not from the lens of only accountability and reporting, but really from that learning orientation. So we're working with our members and their data and their information to see, okay, again, what can we learn from what we're doing, what we've done, what we want to do, and how can we improve it to make sure that we're doing the most amazing work possible with the resources we have. And then finally, our goal is to bring the voice of what we call the sector. So all those actors working together to decision makers. So we know that from way back in the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, uh, one of the areas that was furthest left behind was women and children's health. So where we were making progress on other MDGs, that was really falling behind. And that's largely a political problem. That is a global political problem. And so one of our goals at Kenwatch is to make sure that the future is written differently and that the women and children, their health and rights are not left behind and in fact are advanced as a major and keystone global priority. How did you get to a point where you were doing these things? And how did you get to a point where you were able to run an organization focusing on these issues? I came at this work, I think, from a development perspective, so an international development perspective, which when you look at the G7 leaders, when you look at the foreign policy landscape, international development or global solidarity work or equity work, we can call it, kind of put it in different buckets, is usually a bit of a a sliver of foreign policy, right? Sort of the cousin that's off to the side that no one talks to or talks about. What I'm excited about in my kind of current orientation around international development and what we've been able to do at CanWatch is really bringing these questions of global health to a broader foreign policy conversation. I mean, when you think about the greatest threats at this moment to humanity, to safety within your individual country, you may not be thinking, I mean, of course, this depends on where you are, but certainly within Canada, We're not thinking so much about kind of global security threats like terrorism or things like that. We're thinking about pathogens, right? We're thinking about what is coming across our borders. What are we taking across the borders? Things like things like COVID, things like antimicrobial resistance. You know, these are all these major sort of threats to our existence, to humanity that haven't had a huge place in the foreign policy conversation. So for me, I came at it from a career perspective. I studied international development. I studied foreign policy and sort of Canadian studies, Canada's orientation in the world. I work within government, within universities, within not-for-profits. And when I landed at CanWatch, my goal was really to try to integrate all those skills, but it's almost like all those thought buckets together around, okay, you know, if Canada is going to show up in the world, we are going to show up in the world. 
and we are going to show up in certain ways and how can those ways be really productive and really forward looking and supportive to both a foreign policy agenda that works for Canadians, but a foreign policy agenda that works for the world because I believe that equity and gender equality in particular is the number one threat that exists on the global stage at this moment. And it's also our number one opportunity to grow an economy that works. What particular moments in your career did you find like really pivotal for getting you to doing this work? I started my work at a small three-person with lots of volunteer support, international development organization that worked out of my small town of Peterborough, Ontario, so we're a city of about 70,000, and worked with partners in Kingston, Jamaica, so in one country, one city primarily, on health and rights issues. So it was very, very grassroots, solidarity, rights-oriented organization. And I sort of pulled together different projects and programs that was trying to connect youth in the global South with youth in the global North with this idea that the way we influence and the way that we act and push our governments to do things in democracies looks fairly similar. And so what can youth in Nicaragua, Jamaica, Canada, and all over the world learn from one another about how to get stuff done within their own countries. If the government of Canada is working on something and then their colleagues down at government of Jamaica give them a call and say, hey, we're actually way further ahead than you on this particular issue. How can that propel us more quickly to the kind of outcomes, positive outcomes that we want? So that was my first job. Spent there about five years there. And I, I always say I go back to it as a really foundational to the way that I think about foreign policy, international development to this day. Then I meandered into, while I was working on my master's, I did some work on the government side, giving out grants to not-for-profits and on that sort of programming side. I worked within a university on the Ontario Human Rights Code, so as director of human rights. And then I, I landed at CanWatch, which was at that time a brand new organization, also only had a couple staff. I was hired to essentially build the organization's infrastructure, staff it up and get it to a point of maturity where it could really do the work that I spoke about earlier and do it really well. So I definitely at points in my career, and I always say when I'm talking to young professionals, I felt like I had abandoned my path at many points, you know, when I went to work for the government, when I went to work at a university, wasn't directly in kind of the foreign policy development space. And I was constantly questioning, have I abandoned my passion, this sort of projects? And I would say that that interdisciplinary and intersectoral, being able to see the other side of government, the other side of universities, enriched my ability and I think the kind of skills and expertise that I was able to bring to do what we've done at Kenwatch. And I, I always say to people, yeah, just make the most out of any opportunity. You need to make a living doesn't need to be perfect and just make the most out of, of those moments when you're in them. We tend to think really short-term when we're thinking about our career. We're like, what I'm doing right now. And what I've learned is that with that kind of transition every three to five years, man, can it just be a rich, a rich and fulfilling experience once you get to start weaving it all together. Having what looks kind of random or, you know, we sort of euphemistically refer to as a unique career path, I think is actually a strength. And it's just about like leveraging that strength in the best way, for sure. I totally agree. And just keeping your foot in things, right, in in a non-employment capacity, right? Like I stayed on boards in a voluntary capacity. I worked hard to maintain a volunteer foot in the door with 
the international work that I wanted to do. And that really fueled a lot of my passion. I picked up and did my master's in, in Canadian and foreign policies while I was working because I was like, I know this is where so much of my heart lies, but it's just not in the cards right now based on my life circumstance. I had a daughter very young. I had, you know, to really put some financial concerns in the front. I wasn't able to go traipsing off and do unpaid internships with the three-year-old belted to me, right? Like there was things about my career path that didn't lend themselves to the typical foreign policy or international development student career path. I found ways to keep my foot in the door and to kind of live through that tension of my everyday work, serving a purpose that I couldn't quite see what it was until I came out the other end. I always kind of had tentacles out in different places and everywhere and just stayed connected too to people doing the work. And I never formally sought out mentors, but I definitely look back and think I was surrounded and surrounded myself by some really great people who were thinking in ways that I wanted to be thinking and, and all that kind of stuff. You're so right. And those are great options for continuing to be sort of touching something, even if you need to be, you know, making your, your rent money somewhere else. Thinking about non-traditional ways of being mentored or of being a mentor and how sort of mentor-mentee relationships can, can change and evolve. How you can get a mentor or how you can be a good mentee, how you can kind of make that relationship valuable for both of you. I'd love to point you to my friend um, and colleague, Felicia, who I got to know through a seat share program that Plan Canada undertakes. So it's, it's the Because I'm a Girl campaign, and they bring in all these amazing young people to connect with CEOs and leaders across all sectors. They've got banks, they've got not-for-profits, et cetera. And she's taught me a lot about how to be mentored by a mentee and how to be a mentor to a mentee, that sort of reciprocal relationship. The idea of mentorship and menteeship, it's, it's kind of abstract. It doesn't have meaning in and of itself. And I think to make it really work, and what I've been super grateful to Felicia for is that, you know, she shows up with a set of questions. She knows me well enough now, but even at the beginning, like, she did her research, she did her work and tried to find those overlapping spaces of expertise that I might have and then designed kind of her questions and her queries to me around that. And I found that really helpful because you kind of need like relationship grows. And now we have a relationship where I think we can go back and forth and it's very comfortable and easy, but it doesn't start that way. It starts, you know, kind of more in, in, with a more of an intentional flavor to it where you kind of need a set of questions and you kind of want to know. And I have had people come to me clearly unaware of what my wheelhouse is. And, you know, and I would say unaware of kind of stuff that's knowable. And so the questions they're asking me, I'm just directing them, you know, to other people. Like it's not a good overlap. My advice is to look for people, but to approach people with a genuine and authentic question. So you don't ever have to label it mentor, mentee, or unless that's helpful, but really you're just trying to get at this, this relationship. And just one other thing I've really appreciated that Felicia has brought to the table as well as other people that I've worked with kind of in this, I would say in this nature, is she's willing to support my questions to her too, right? Like I don't have access to the kind of work, the grassroots work that she's doing anymore. I don't have my ear to the ground in the same way that I used to. 
And so she's willing to not just ask me questions and have me sort of supporting her. She's willing to like share her experiences with me and kind of give back in that way of like, I'm learning a ton from her. I think that we often are like, oh, I like didn't make it to this thing or like I didn't have the follow through or like there's this idea that if I didn't get into the PhD program and like finish this thing that I had thought about doing because we're all so like primed to think of academic achievement as like the key unless doing something that's very clearly the top of your professional field immediately. You have it set in your head. If I didn't make it all the way there, then like I have failed somehow. And we don't really have a framework for talking about making conscious choices to not do a degree, for instance, because we know that it's a better choice for us not to do that. The desire to have to be credentialed and to be legitimate in the spaces that I show up in. I mean, I feel this all the way, all the time in the foreign policy space, because I'm like the you know, bleeding heart do-gooder that comes to these conversations with like serious people, serious economists and serious academics and serious, you know, and I'm just this sort of person focused on equity and, and gender equality and making the case for why equity is both good for the world and the right thing for the world. And, you know, to be able to have a PhD to be called doctor, whatever, when I show up in those spaces, I've often thought, oh man, like, that would make me feel differently. But at the end of the day, that's within my control, right? How I feel and how I choose to show up. And the PhD probably actually wouldn't give me what I want. And it, it would have taken time away from doing this thing that has become, even though it wasn't immediately so, as you say, has become just so incredibly fulfilling and you know, a real career game changer for me, I guess. One of the other things sort of shifting gears a little bit that is like really prominent right now are, are talking about like working from home. And there's all this discussion about, you know, are we all going to go back to work ever? And like, what does that look like? And should we, should we go back to work? Do people have the right to demand that we go back to work? You know, all of that stuff is like a really hot topic of discussion right now. How do you find the structure you need? Or like, what do you recommend to people who maybe hadn't been working from home Alternatively, people who are coming out of school and have been doing school from home, but now have their first or second job and suddenly have to work from home. And that's a little bit of a different dynamic. So we've been a virtual organization since, um, since inception. And it's so funny because we have, you know, our board of directors and our members for the most part are not, right? They are bricks and mortar type organizations who are then, because of the pandemic, forced into this space. I think my advice to employers is working from home is, from my perspective, gives you so much in terms of the type of talent you can recruit, in terms of the type of the richness of the lives that people can live. Like I live in a a small town. I do not have to live in a city. I do not want to live in a city. I want to live in a small city, a small town. I want to live where I am right now. I don't want to move. And for really most jobs in my field, in my sector, I would have to, we have tons of rural staff. We have staff who are in the middle of nowhere. And increasingly, I want to think about how can we ensure that the virtual workplace is also attracting a really diverse staff, right? So We've got geographically diverse staff, but you should presumably be able to create a more equal playing field for all staff coming in as virtual employers, right? You should be able to 
recruit someone when all they need. Mission Canada is mostly available, although we do need we do need to further this, but mostly available is internet, right? A computer, all of which we we pay for. So we pay for people's internet, we pay for their phones, we pay for all that kind of stuff. So if that's all you need, you should be able to access um, a more diverse workforce. And certainly you feel that we've been able to recruit really top talent because it's an attraction to be able to work from home. So that's from the employer side. From the employee side, the conversations that I have with team members as they come on and they're coming into their virtual space, especially if they haven't done it before, which pretty much no one that we've hired has like a ton of experience working, including myself, working in a virtual space. But the few things I say and the few things that we do that are different is you have to create intentional space to be human. And that's weird. That's a bit of a weird thing because when you pick up the phone and you call someone, you have a purpose. And aside from when you call your mom or something like that from far away to just sort of catch up, usually if you're making a work phone call, a work video call, you really have an intention. Your intention isn't just to find out what the person did over the weekend. We have been super intentional about this kind of time that's allotted to just being human. So every meeting starts out off with, how are you landing here today? And when we start off with that conversation, we hear everything from, well, I just got engaged and, you know, I'm getting married. Somebody passed away to a cat story. You hear everything and we're open to whatever. We've had many a tears, many a laughs, many a, you know, all kinds of emotional responses or reactions, but we, we create time for it. And I think that's really, really critical. And even as a young employee, I would kind of insist on that. I would say, look, I need an opportunity to get to know people so that I can support and connect and do better work because we know that more connected workplaces are more productive, right? And so I think young people can, coming into new jobs, can actually, it's, it's possible that leadership is even looking to them to be like, okay, we got to spice up this virtual workplace. What are some things we could do? And I found posing that question and putting that question to staff has come up with some really fun results. So be intentional about the type of stuff. If you picture an office, the type of stuff that happens unintentionally, the so-called water cooler stuff, you've got to get intentional about bringing that to the virtual workplace. So every staff person that starts with us does a 15-minute water cooler chat with every single other staff person. So when you come in, part of your orientation is to have a 15, 20-minute conversation with every one of your colleagues about on non-work stuff. And that just means I can then say to you at our next meeting, hey, at our water cooler chat, you were telling me that you were just about to paint your wall. Take me over to your wall. Show me the wall that you painted. I want to see it. I've been dying to know how it turned out or whatever, right? Like you've got to find some kernels of humanity. Don't be afraid of like making a real friend virtually, right? Like you have to get into that mode of this isn't, in place of this is like the real thing. These are the real human connections that I'm making at this moment. And this forum and this mode is a little bit different, but I'm willing to put myself out there and and be present and be part of it in a way that sort of builds lasting relationship and lasting connection and engagement. I've been shocked at the degree to which, you know, we used to see each other once once or twice a year for in-person staff meetings. But I would forget, like people would walk in the room and I'd be like, oh, I actually haven't seen you for eight months in person. This is the first time, but it was like, I just was with you yesterday, right? Because we were virtually together 
keeping your video on, doing those things, like just putting, really showing up with your full presence, not multitasking. That's how you would respectfully treat another human being if you were in the room with them and really cared and wanted to get to know them. So you kind of got to, you know, create the discipline and call people out when they're not having the discipline. Like, it seems like you're distracted. It seems like you're doing other things. Maybe we could have this call at another time. I think the last thing we want to chat about today is I want you to talk just a little bit about the um, Foreign Policy by Canadians project and sort of the work you've done there. Talk a little bit about what that is for non-Canadian listeners and, you know, what you're excited about that's upcoming there or sort of what's exciting that's coming out of that process. Foreign Policy by Canadians was, for me, one of the most interesting projects I've had the pleasure to be involved in you know, talking about threads and careers and how things work together. Something I'm very passionate and interested about is just democracy and how democracy functions and the dysfunctions of democracy is one scholar who I'm going to forget their name. Hopefully it'll come back to me, but put it, you know, democracy may not be the best system, but at this point it's the best we've got. And I really, really believe that's true that, you know, we've seen sort of a pushing of the limits of democracy and how much space we can create in sort of these pluralistic societies that we we believe in. And certainly what we see happening in Afghanistan right now is heartbreaking. And so I'm very passionate about this concept about having conversations and how do we have difficult conversations? How do we have complicated conversations when we don't have access to all the information that we need when we're not the experts and yet our opinion on the subject because we live in democracies does actually bear weight and does sort of matter. How do we form those opinions and all this kind of thing. I'm just, I'm, I, if I choose my podcast, if I choose my listening, that's what it's about. It's about how does opinion form? How does it shift? How do we change our minds about things? And how does society function and democracy function on the basis of that? I'm super interested in what people think about foreign policy and this project that we did really moved beyond. It was, we worked, Stanford University, the Canadian International Council, Global Canada, these different organizations. And Stanford has done this work all over the world. Fascinating. Jim Fishkin and Alice Sue, best partners ever. What they do is they essentially put people in conversation with one another. So take any topic in the States. They did it on immigration, on healthcare, like some big hot topics in the States. In our case, we were looking at foreign policy. And what you do is you pull people, you pull a huge group of people, then you pull a sample, a representative sample of that poll to, and you ask them if they would consider engaging in conversation, which is very long, it's 12 hours in this case, about the topics you pulled them on. And then after they say yes, they're given a briefing book that's developed by experts who are supposed to be weighted. So it's not supposed to be people who all believe what I believe and that's who are the experts and that's how we develop the guide. But actually really it's supposed to weigh out these opposing opinions on any given subject. So let's say, you know, should we close down and restrict borders was one of our questions. Should we be heavy on the border restrictions in the context of COVID as a public health measure or not? That's a weighty question and experts weigh in saying yes, of course, and no, that's, it's not effective. The participants read the guides, and then they're sat in a room with 12 fellow Canadians to have a conversation. They're prompted with the question, and they're supposed to share their opinion. And they're not supposed to come to a consensus. They're supposed to hear what different opposing opinions are from other Canadians. Then they do the poll again, 
and we see if their opinions have shifted or changed. And then we have the transcripts of that full set of conversation. What it's allowed us to understand is that, you know, a lot about the Canadian public perception around foreign policy issues, which will help us talk further with Canadians and meet them where they're at. It'll help us talk with decision makers about what Canadians' opinions are. But to me, the most interesting thing that came out of it is that people can't have difficult conversations and people appreciate when the two options are put in front of them. So this very kind of partisan way of talking where it's, we kind of ignore the fact that there might be an opposing opinion, like, you know, on the, on the social good side, we say, well, of course we should invest in A, B, and C because it is the right thing to do. And we don't talk about, you know, but if we don't invest in this, we could be investing in this. And this is a trade-off. This is a decision that needs to be made. And there's two sides to this decision. And I think when we're trying to push a particular set of perspective, we're afraid to go into those opposing opinions and really, you know, describe them and describe why we're taking the position that we're taking as it relates to alternatives. And what I took from this exercise is, you know, that is not a great approach. The best approach is to really lay the cards on the table. You can have an opinion and you can sort of state and claim why you think that, but to really be fulsome in your explanation and exploratory and really satisfy the needs of those people who disagree is just a better approach to having conversations. So I'm super excited about what we've learned from the exercise, but I'm also just really super excited. It sort of restored my faith in the fact that you can actually be in conversation with people you disagree with, and it doesn't have to turn negative or go poorly. It can just be a good conversation and you can shift and change or not. And it's okay at the end of the day. A lot of the folks who are showing up as the quote unquote experts, a lot of what they're doing is just forming opinions too. And that's, I don't know, it's, it's okay to do that. It's okay to show up and not know everything about everything or not be a a kind of credentialed expert because we just need different perspectives um, in that conversation. And I, I say that with humility as a, as a white, very privileged woman. And I think I show up a lot more in the conversations, people like me show up a lot more in the conversations than, for example, you know, women from the global south. And given my field of interest is what's going on from an equity perspective, that's a real problem. And so I've made it a personal mission, but also an organizational mandate mission to, to engage those voices and to bring those voices to the top. But there are not enough women in foreign policy spaces and that we all have a role to play to change that. And I just really appreciate that your podcast is targeted at young people, younger people often and, you know, early career. And my encouragement and advice is just to stick with it because we need your voices in in the conversations because increasingly I don't think we have domestic policy without foreign policy. And I think day-to-day decisions and engagement that we have in our communities and going out to buy our groceries are a result of foreign policy decisions. And if we don't take that seriously and get a good team of problem-solving, smart-thinking humans around the table, you know, our future is really at risk. 
we also hope that we're not just enriching the field for white women who went to state schools, but that we're also sort of doing the work of elevating voices from sort of the, the global South and from real communities where, you know, you don't even have the advantage of having a college education maybe, but you have all of that practical knowledge and it's like an issue that really touches like your life. And so you have the lived experience that makes you an expert. So I really appreciate you saying that. And um, I thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on whatever app you use. That helps other people find us. While you're at it, please subscribe to the Women in Foreign Policy newsletter available on our website. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or anyone you'd be interested in us interviewing, please let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at Women and FP. And if the work we're doing means a lot to you, please consider supporting us via PayPal at Lucy Gillette or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. We are an all-volunteer team, so that means your support goes even further. We love the work we do and couldn't do it without listeners like you. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you again soon.